You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast as we go through a series on the life and work of Jesus. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the gospel according to Jesus in John chapter 3. When you look at the book of John, uh, I would say John chapter 3 and John chapter 11 are probably two of my very favorite chapters, and it's all about dead men coming back to life. Um, And so, uh, it really is, if you think about it, when you start to look at the gospel, uh, we'll talk about this, and we'll talk about being born again, and uh, all of those things tonight as we go through John chapter 3, but two really incredible uh, passages uh, in the book of John, and uh, Lord will and as we say in Kentucky, and the creek don't rise, uh, we'll be doing John chapter 11 as well. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that before. Anyone ever heard that? Lord willing, and the creek don't rise? You know, so, yeah, so that's it. If you're from the south, you know, we say that because a, a, a good flash flood, and you ain't going nowhere. That creek rises, I'm telling you, it's, it shuts down everything. Okay, uh, so last week we talked about the baptism and the temptation. Uh, we had a great time kind of going through, seeing what uh, Jesus walked through, uh, what we experience as believers as we walk through temptation and some of those things. And we talked about him truly being the Son of God, part of the Trinity. And as we go through the Gospels, uh, we'll see this time after time again, each of the Gospel writers just reiterating the fact that Jesus is the incarnate God, that he is God in flesh, that he came down to save us. And that's exactly what they want you to know. And they reiterate it almost in every single story that they tell us. So we saw Jesus being tempted. We saw him resisting with scripture, the importance of knowing the word of God, of being in the word of God. And uh, Jesus as our perfect role model. Okay, we saw the baptism uh, and all of these things, but today we're gonna talk about Jesus sharing the truths of the gospel with a man by the name of Nicodemus, by a man by the name of Nicodemus. So let's pray, let's read through uh, John chapter three, so you can open your Bibles there with me and, uh, and then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we can be here, Lord, studying your word. Lord, thank you for a sweet time of worship. Lord, thank you for uh, that we have these events where we can have fun together. Lord, thank you that you're always with us. Lord, even when we don't feel it, even when we don't see it, as the song says, Lord, you're always here. Lord, thank you that you're patient, as we'll see tonight with Nicodemus. Lord, thank you for your truths, Lord, that change our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much to go to the cross. So, Lord, we ask you to minister to our hearts, Lord. Refresh us in your word tonight, in your name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to go through verse 21. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll break it down. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, 
no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that they, what they have done <laughs> has been done in the sight of God. Okay, uh, so the first thing that we see here is there's a man by the name of Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the ruling Jewish council. To be a Pharisee, what it means is he actually knows the Scripture. He spends time studying the Scripture and knowing the Scripture to be able to rule the Jew Jewish people. Now, the Pharisees were all wound up in the law. They loved the law. Everything to them was about making sure that they were keeping every element of the law, which we know is impossible. So what would they do? When they failed at keeping the law, they hid themselves. When they were sick, they believed that was because they had made a mistake, that they had sinned, and God was cursing them with the sickness, so therefore they hid themselves so that no one would know anything about it. Can you imagine living in a system, being part of a religious system where you had to hide everything? everything, even down to your sicknesses, because you were afraid that people would judge you for what you had done or what you had not done, what you had not kept. So basically, these guys were constantly on alert. They were always looking for everyone's failures. Fun way to live, right? Fun way to live. Always looking for everyone's failures and always trying to make sure that no one can see yours. I don't know about you guys, but I make a lot of mistakes. I'm guessing you guys are nearly perfect since most of you are like, I don't know what he's talking about, right? I make a lot of mistakes. I do dumb stuff sometimes. And sometimes I do things and I'm like, why did I do that? That was so stupid. I know better than that. We make dumb mistakes. You know what I love about the freedom that we have in Christ? 
When I do something dumb, I'm surrounded by this group of believers that I can go to and say, hey, can you pray for me? I'm struggling here. This is happening with me. This is going on. These guys didn't have that. Have you ever thought about that? They were so wrapped up in their religious system that they could not go to one another and say, hey, this is going on with me. Can you pray for me? Because to reveal your sin or your doubt about something to someone else meant that you would be rejected from the Jewish culture and society. So Nicodemus is taking a huge risk here. He's a Pharisee. He's not allowed to show that he has some questions. And look at it. The Bible says he came at night under the cover of darkness. Why? Because what if anybody knew that he had actually come to talk to Jesus? Because all of these people, they've already said things like, oh, he must be a son of Beelzebub. He's doing the work of the devil. No, there's no way that this guy is truly the Messiah, the son of God. He claims himself to be the Messiah. He needs to be stoned to death. And as you go through the Gospels, you'll see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees many times tried to stone Jesus to death. But he escaped them because his time had not come, is what the scripture says. These guys were just looking for opportunities to kill Jesus. And Nicodemus is like, hey, I think some of what this guy's saying kind of lines up with what we've been studying and looking at all these years. It's starting to make sense to me. So you see Nicodemus kind of sneaks over to where Jesus is saying and goes in the middle of the night, knocks on the door and says, hey, uh, Jesus, uh, can I talk to you? I mean, there's a few of us, and you can see in his phrasing, he says, there's some of us that know that you are from God because the things that you have done have to be done only by God. So there's some of us that know and understand. Can you explain it? Can you tell me about it? And Jesus says, listen, I'm telling you, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus, in all of his great wisdom, asked the question that probably every single one of us would ask in this room if somebody told us that and we had no idea. You know, guys, there's this whole language that Christians have. You guys know the language of Christianese, right? Christianese, that's what I like to call it. It's a language that no one understands outside of the church, right? Have you been justified and sanctified? Ask somebody, ask your friends, ask your families that have never been church if they've been justified and sanctified and they're like, uh, what, what does that mean, right? What does that mean? Have you accepted the atonement? What? The what? Okay, we have all of these biblical words, we have all of this Christian language that we use and born again is one of them. Born again is one of them. Are you a born-again Christian? You know that's a little redundant, a born-again Christian? Because you can't be a Christian without actually being born again. So if you are a Christian, you need to say born-again Christian, okay? You don't need to say all of it together, but it's understood as a Christian that you are born again. But I think because there's so much confusion of the gospel in the church today, that people have added that tagline to Christian because there's so many people out there calling themselves Christian that have not been born again. They're like Nicodemus. They study a bunch of scripture. They don't know anything about what it truly means. They're just going through some religious 
motions. So Nicodemus is there at night. He knows the scripture, but he doesn't know and understand who God is. Jesus tells him directly, if you knew the Father and you truly knew him, you would know me. You would have recognized me. When I came, when I spoke, when I did these signs and wonders, you would have said, it's the Messiah. This is God in flesh. If you truly had a relationship with the Father. And some of them did. And so here's Nicodemus in the cover of night, still afraid of what other people might think. He knows about God. He doesn't know God. He has a great understanding of the word of God without having any true understanding of the word of God. Does that make sense? That sounds contradictory, doesn't it? He has an understanding of the word of God in the sense that he can recite it, he can tell you about it, he can tell you about the law. This guy could probably quote all 613 of the Jewish law. He probably could. We don't know that for sure, but most of them had a very good grasp on every single one of the laws from the Old Testament, okay? And here he is with Jesus, And Jesus tells him, he says, you need to be born again. And he asked the question that everyone would ask, what do you mean born again? He's like, am I supposed to go up in my mother's womb again? Jesus, you're talking weird stuff right now. You ever know, Jesus talks weird stuff a lot, doesn't he? Right? He talks weird stuff a lot. And there are several times in the scripture where people are like, that's weird stuff, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. He says, you need to be born again. He says, do I need to go back into my mother's womb? But Jesus says, no, you need to be born of water and born of spirit. So what does it mean to be born again? Some people say that Jesus is talking about a baptism and then a spiritual birth. But if you just literally look at the scripture and the progression of scripture, Jesus explains himself almost immediately. He says, first you're born of flesh and then you need to be born of spirit. So Jesus is talking about a physical birth, born of water. If anybody's ever had a baby or been present when a baby was born, they know what's the first thing they said, my water broke, right? My water broke, born of water, born of woman. You need to be born, that's your first birth. But then you need to be born again. Then you need to be born again. Why do we need to be born again? We need to be born of the spirit, okay? So we're born of woman, and then we're born of the spirit, okay? The word born again actually refers to being born from above. That's another way to translate it. Instead of again, it's born from above. Well, that one makes a lot of sense, right? That's a lot easier to understand, than saying born again, born from above. Now, this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. All the way back to Adam and Eve. In the beginning when God created man, man was perfect. And God breathed the spirit into man and man had perfect communion with God. We've talked about this several times. Adam and Eve got to walk around the garden They were 
conversing with God. It says God walked right there with them. How cool is that? And then they sinned. We talked about that a little bit last week, that temptation. They sinned. And in the temptation, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, when God told Adam you can eat of any tree in the entire garden, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, he said, except for this one, because if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. So they ate of this tree, but they didn't die. But they did. They died spiritually that day. And they were kicked out of the garden and they lost their perfect communion with God. The image of God in man was broken in the garden. It's basic gospel. The image of God in man has been broken and must be restored before you can have communion with God again. It's basic gospel. We're broken. You're an image bearer. But unless you've been redeemed, you're a broken image bearer. That communion that we have with God is cut off. It's broken. We don't get that fellowship with God. And God wants to revive our dead spirit inside of us. He wants to revive our dead spirit inside of us. And that's what he's telling Nicodemus. He needs a new birth. He's letting him know that scripture, all the stuff in the past, all of that's about me. And I'm here to give you this awakening, this new birth, this new birth, so that you may be able to have communion with God again. It's not about knowing scripture. It's not about being able to recite the law. It's about a personal relationship with the creator God of the universe. I once saw in a man's Bible in the very front of it, and I thought it was so good. He said, read this, not to know the text, but rather to know the author more intimately. It's good to know. It's good to be able to recite it. It's good to be able to quote the Bible. But your intentions in reading the scripture should be to know Jesus better, to know him better. A lot of people say this is God's love letter to us. And you know in those old movies where they have those boxes of love letters and they pull out the love letters and they just want to read them over and over and over again because they're so beautiful, because they're so amazing. Well, this, those letters are nothing compared to God's love letter to you. This is all about how much he loves you. It's about all the plans that he set in place before time so that he would be able to die on the cross, so that he would be able to show you that he loves you. And it's about all of the things that he has planned for you. It's about all of the things that he wants to give you right now. So yes, you should know it. But you know, love letters don't replace the person, right? They don't replace the person. Our goal is to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, not just to know the scripture backward and forward. It's good to know, but your ultimate goal through the scripture should be to know him better, to know him better. We must be born again because the spirit is dead. 
We were created to have communion with God, but we have to be born again to have that. Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of all of our sins, Paul says. In 1 Peter 1, 3, Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we mentioned this verse last week, talking about baptism. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You were dead and you've been made alive. You know what's really cool about birth? The awesome thing about birth is how much past and history does a newborn baby have? None, right? They can't go to jail for things they had done in the past. There's no looking back at them. You know, a lot of religions believe in reincarnation, that every time you're born, you're suffering from things you've done in your past. That's not what the Bible teaches us. When we are born first of our mothers, we come into this world. The only thing that we have against us is we are born of the blood of Adam. So we're sinners by birth. We're sinners by birth. But the reality is there's no past that you have done. There are no things. So when we are born again in the spirit, it doesn't mean that God's gonna make you forget about every single thing you've ever done in your entire life or those things. But here's the reality. The Bible says that he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. He takes them away from us. You're born again. It's a fresh start. You're a new creation. A new creature in Christ Jesus is what it says. You're new. You've been born again. So that's what Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus. Let's move on to verses 9 through 15. Throughout the scripture, we see Jesus use this name for himself. And a lot of times people don't really recognize or understand, but Jesus' favorite name for himself was not Jesus, was not the Christ, was not Messiah, but rather it was Son of Man. Son of Man. Throughout the Gospels, it's used 81 times. 81 times throughout the Gospels, okay? In the book of Matthew alone, I think it's 40. Son of Man. This name that Jesus uses for himself, okay, is a really interesting prophetic name that the Jewish people would understand. And it's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. I mean, I'm sorry, 13 and 14. 7, 13, and 14. And it says here, in my vision at night, I looked, and therefore before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Jewish people understood this prophecy from Daniel to be a messianic prophecy. 
They were looking for this one that would come as a son of man. So when Jesus uses this name to refer to himself as the son of man, the Jewish people are like, what, 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 what? Son of man? You're calling yourself the son of man? And he did it over and over and over and over again. He does it with Nicodemus here on purpose. Because he wants Nicodemus to know, because Nicodemus is a scholar. Nicodemus knows the scripture. Nicodemus would understand the messianic prophecy from Daniel chapter 7 that Jesus was referring to when he says, the son of man. The son of man. So in verses 9 through 15, okay, we see Jesus talking about himself as the son of man. He knew that Nicodemus would understand. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus uses a story. He says, and the son of man will be lifted up like the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Again, what is Jesus doing? He's pointing back to the Old Testament and saying, hey, Nick, I just, you know, I mean, come on. Nicodemus, I know you know this stuff. You know the scripture. Let me tell you about a story. And I'm gonna tell you how I fulfill that story and what that story was truly all about from the moment that it happened. So if you look in Numbers, okay, there it is, Numbers 21, four through nine, you see this story. The Israelites had just had a great victory. That's, this is one of the amazing things about the Israelites in the wilderness. They get these incredible victories because they, they prayed and God showed up and this incredible thing happened and they were obedient to the things that the Lord had done. And then all of a sudden, it's like one verse later. And then they walked for a couple of days and started complaining. Isn't that just like us? I mean, I think we give the Israelites a really hard time in the wilderness. You're like, they're so stupid. They're so dumb. Why didn't they just follow the Lord? They could have been there in like 40 days instead of 40 years. They're so dumb. And then you look at your own life and you're like, well, I'm just, you know, it's okay. People make mistakes, right? But we do exactly the same thing. We have these mountaintop moments with Christ, and we have these incredible victories in our life, and two days later, you're like, hey, what's going on? You're like, I don't know. I just really feel like God's not here. Is that not true? Do we not do that? Maybe for you guys, it's longer than two days. Maybe it's three, okay? But it does seem that we talked about that last week. It's almost like baptism, that mountaintop moment with the Lord, triggers the enemy's attack. And that's part of what's happening. When we have those great victories, when we have those mountaintop moments, the enemy's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not let these guys get too excited. They might start sharing with everybody and a whole bunch of people get saved. We don't want too much of that. We better bring them down a couple of notches. Maybe that's what's happening. But so the Israelites, there in the book of Numbers, had just had this great victory, and they're walking around, and then all of a sudden, they're eating God's provision, they're eating the things that God has for them, and they're like, you know what? This food's kind of terrible. I mean, gosh. Quail, and then this whatever bread stuff that completely satisfies you every single time. You know, I'd just like to have some of that food that we had back there in Egypt. Some of that fatty meat. Oh, so good, right? 
slow roasted brisket all day long with the fat still on it. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Anybody like some barbecue up in here, right? Listen, they were like, oh, goodness, I just remember. Isn't it funny how we look back on our past and sometimes we forget the wretched things that were connected to some of those little tiny delightful moments? All they could remember was the food. They didn't remember the harsh labor. They didn't remember the fact that the Egyptians were uh, continued to take away elements and say, yeah, but keep up your quota. We're not giving you any hay. We're not giving you any straw to build. Keep up your quota. You need to make more bricks today. Really? Make some more. And they were slaves, and they were abused. No, all they could remember was, oh, there was such good food there. Oh, my goodness. Remember that? Maybe you do that. Maybe you look back at high school. Maybe you look back at times when you were in the world, and you're like, man, we had so much fun, didn't we? Because you forget that worshiping a porcelain God until two o'clock in the morning, right? You know what I'm talking about, the white throne. You bent over, throwing up into the white throne, the porcelain God that you've bowed down before because you drank too much. But the devil says, hey, wasn't that a good time? Don't you remember? Don't you remember? Don't you remember? It was a good time. And sometimes we're convinced, and we're like, yeah, I, I should just go back and do some of that stuff. I had so much fun back then. And so then, hopefully, God wakes you up and goes, nah, no, 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 no. Remember this part of it, and you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that was bad. That was real bad. Stay away. The devil likes to entice us with the good moments. And so they started complaining, and God was mad. He was angry, and he was like, I'm tired of this, Moses. I can't do this anymore. I'm tired of it. It's interesting to read the stories of, of the Israelites through the wilderness. God gets frustrated with several times. He's like, I'm just going to get rid of all these wretched people and start all over, start all over. Moses is like, no, Lord, no. And so God sends serpents, and serpents start coming up out of the ground in the middle of the wilderness and biting them, and they just fall over dead. They're just dying all over the place. And so Moses, because he loves his people and he loves the Lord, goes to the Lord and says, Lord, the people are dying. We know we have sinned. We know we have done wrong before you. Please let me help these people. And God says, take a stick, cast a bronze serpent, put it on top of the stick, raise it up in the air and tell the people, look upon the bronze serpent on the stick and you will be healed. Bronze serpent on a stick. Have you ever read that passage of scripture and said, what? God told Moses to make a snake on a stick and put it out so that the people could look up to it and that's what would heal them. But once you get to John chapter three, verse 15, you realize what God was doing and why he did that. Because it says, just as the serpent was raised in the wilderness, so the son of man must also be lifted up. The stick represents the cross. The snake represents the sin from the garden. The first sin. All of us are guilty of original sin due to the fact that Adam had the first sin. That snake represents sin. Bronze, biblically, represents judgment. So that snake in the wilderness 
was the judgment of sin on a wooden stick. And when you look at it, when you recognize it, you will be healed. Healed of what? The snake bite. Of the venomous thing that's killing you. Sin. That snake bite was a representation of sin because of the wickedness of God's people. They got bitten by a snake. The venom ran throughout their body and it caused death. It's a spiritual illustration. Sin. We get bitten. The venom runs throughout us and brings us to death. And Jesus is saying, I paid the price on the cross. I judged sin. Every bit of it from the very beginning, from the very first time the serpent in the garden spoke to Adam and Eve, I judged from that sin forward on a tree because I loved you. The Son of Man must be lifted up in the same way that that bronze serpent was lifted up because the judgment of sin will be paid once and for all. Once and for all. Jesus knows Nicodemus understands the Old Testament stuff. Jesus probably knows that Nicodemus was like, why the bronze serpent? Crazy thing about the the people of Israel is they kept that serpent for a really long time. And in the day of Hezekiah, the Bible says that they destroyed all the pagan gods and all the things that the people had started to worship, and they destroyed the bronze serpent on the pole from the days of Moses. Why? Because anytime there's a representation of something, people start to worship the representation more than the creator. And that's what they were doing. So this perfect illustration of Jesus coming on the cross and judging sin on the cross was lost because the people began to worship the item instead of actually who it represented and what he was about to do. If only they had known and understood. But they didn't. They didn't. Because they were lost in legalism. Jesus will tell them this time and time and time again. We'll see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus will say, you understand the law. You know the law, but you don't get the heart of the law and why the law exists. You don't get it. And we'll see it time and time and time again. So this whole thing that Jesus is referencing here is a foreshadowing of what he's about to do. Romans 6.23, Romans 3.23, everyone has sin. And the payment of sin is death. A snake bite. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life because sin was paid for on the cross. I love the way the Bible aligns with itself. This illustration that God planned in the time of Moses, how many thousands of years before Jesus came to fulfill it? That's no mistake. That's no looking back going, oh, you know what? That'd make a pretty good illustration. No, that's a planned illustration for what was about to happen on the cross. The judgment of sin upon a pole. The judgment of sin upon a pole. John 3, 16 and 18 through 18. You guys know this, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I highly recommend you memorize 17 as well. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world may be saved through him. Okay? Why? Because it's vitally important part of the gospel. Jesus died for everyone, people. He died for everyone. Whoever is used three times in this single verse. Whoever. Whoever. I don't know about you, but to me, that looks like it's pretty inclusive. Whoever. Whoever. Not just a select few, but whoever believes in him. It tells us that Jesus' first coming was not about condemnation. It was not about judgment. It actually says that the sin itself, your lack of belief, is the condemnation and judgment. Jesus didn't come to judge you when he came to die on a cross for you. He came to give you life. It's our sin and our lack of belief that judges us. People say all the time, how could a loving God ever send someone to hell? He doesn't. You send yourself to hell. In a sense, it's true. Right? He gave you every opportunity. He gave you every opportunity to know him. And you chose no. It's your unbelief that has condemned you. Now, he will come. And there will be a judgment day. And he will send you to hell. But you have made that decision. You have made that decision. He's just going to finalize it in that day. But the beautiful thing about Christ is that he continues to give us opportunities, more chances, further opportunities to know him, to believe in him. So many stories of people that have resisted and resisted and resisted and resisted. And one day, I remember listening to a book and about a guy who prayed for his friend for 44 years and never gave up. And finally, right towards the end of his life, his friend received Jesus. 44 years. He never gave up. God never gave up. Whoever, whoever. Second Peter 3, 9 says that God does not wish that anyone would perish, but that everyone would come to eternal life. Everyone, whoever, everyone would come to eternal life. Now, God knows that that's not gonna happen. He knows that it's not. But the Bible says that it's his desire. It's his written will that everyone come to eternal life. Now, here's the interesting thing about the written will of God. You can break it. Ten Commandments, the written will of God. The moral law, the way we should be living life, the written will of God. He wrote it down for us. He gave us a guidebook. He told us how we should live. He gave us Jesus as the perfect model. You can choose not to do those things. But there's punishment involved. That's the written will of God. It's called the preceptive will of God. The preceptive will of God. If you want to get biblically and Christian easy, the preceptive will of God, okay? Jesus goes on to return to Nicodemus coming at night. It's interesting because he says, they love the darkness 
Men love the darkness more than the light. Men love the darkness more than the light. Verses 19 through 21. He, he talks about darkness again. Nicodemus came in the dark of night because he was afraid. Because he was afraid. Now, the beautiful thing about Nicodemus is we see him again. We see him again. When Jesus died on the cross, he and his friend Joseph of Arimathea are the ones that take Jesus' body down and put it in Joseph's tomb. It's Nicodemus. It's the same guy. It's the one that came to him by the cover of night that was willing now in the understanding of his belief and his life in Christ, recognizing who Christ was, to say, I'm taking that body down. I don't care what these guys say about me. In the beginning, he wasn't. He doesn't go away from this moment going, okay, I believe, and, and fall down on his face and begin worshiping Jesus. He doesn't. It's interesting when we see people come to the Lord, and I've seen so many varieties of things happen with people. Some people, there's this incredible moment of absolute brokenness where they're weeping and snotty before the Lord. You all know what I'm talking about, right? That happens. And some people, it's this progression as they begin to understand and know the things of the Lord. Maybe it's not a single day for them. Maybe it's not a single moment for them. Maybe it's a progression of time for them. With Nicodemus, we don't see a single moment. We don't see his salvation moment. We just don't. We see him get the gospel. We see Jesus in the fullness of his patience, just like he's patient with us, going, you don't understand these things? You're a teacher of the law, and you, how would you understand anything heavenly if you can't understand these earthly things? And he's, Jesus is pretty firm with him, honestly. But he does go on to tell him how much he loves him. He does go on to tell him that he, he died for him, that God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus, his son. That's Jesus' words, talking about himself. For God so loved the world. That's pretty amazing, you guys. It says, men love the darkness more than they love the light. Jesus is the light of the world. John 1, 4 through 13, John the Baptist talks about the light that Jesus is. John 8, verse 12, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. He proclaims himself the light of the world. I just recently saw a church sign as I was scrolling through some, some social media thing, and you know, people take pictures and post church signs, and it says, we live in a world where everything is offensive except sin. Men love the darkness. Men love the darkness, but they hate the light because the light reveals who they truly are. It reveals our sin. And until Christ captures you, that's ugly. Until you know that you're redeemed in Jesus, nobody wants light shed on the things that they're doing in the darkness. That's why men love the darkness, because it hides the ugliness. They can be just like Nicodemus and the Pharisees and put on a face and pretend like everything's good as they go to work every day, but it's wretched in the other parts of their lives. The Bible says that Jesus is the light. And when the light comes in, the darkness has no place. 
We need to turn on the light. We need Jesus to be the light of our lives, to get rid of the darkness, to get rid of the darkness in our lives that we don't continue to walk in darkness, but that we can know him, that we can walk in the light as Nicodemus would shortly do. Let's pray. Let's take communion together. Okay, uh, Justin's gonna come. We're gonna play a song, get your communion elements, and we will take communion together um, and celebrate the redemption that we have in Christ, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that you and I, you and I, whoever, all us whosoevers. I have a friend who, not a friend, an associate who started a ministry called the whosoevers. The whosoevers. It's pretty cool. The whosoevers. Because that's what we are. Your name fits right there in the whosoevers in John three sixteen. The whosoevers. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Praise God. Jesus, that we can have eternal life in him. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you, God, that you are good. Um, Lord, we thank you that we can worship you, Lord, and we thank, that you, thank you that you have brought us into the great light. Lord, we thank you for this relationship that we can have with you to restore our communion, to restore our peace, Lord, to give us joy. Lord, and ultimately that we would be with you in paradise for eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Lord, thank you for these conversations with men like Nicodemus, Lord, that reveal to us how much you love us. Lord, be with us and prepare our hearts as we come before you in communion, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. This is Pastor Daniel Williams with Redemption Church. Thank you so much for listening to this message. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube so you never miss a message. The mission of Redemption Church is to pursue and to proclaim Jesus, and we would love to have you partner with us. Feel free to share these messages with your family and friends. And also, if you'd like to donate to the ministry, go to redemptiondb.com. God bless you.